everybody. Thank you very much. Welcome back. Uh, now we'll have a conversation about Congress's power of the purse in the modern administrative state. Now, one of the interesting things about administrative law when it's taught in class and, and discussed in the courts is that generally the appropriations power takes up very little space, if any, in an administrative law course. For all the ink that's been spent, uh, spilt over a century of administrative law articles and administrative law judicial opinions, Congress's power of the purse has been only a tiny drop, if at all. Um, which is interesting because if you've been in government, in particular been in an agency or in Congress, you know that Congress's power of the purse is incredibly important, sometimes the most important thing. And so it's been interesting to see, even in, in recent decades, as administrative law has become more and more important, um, the lack of focus on appropriations and the power of the purse in administrative law, which then makes it very interesting that in the last year or so, it really has come to the forefront of the Supreme Court's docket. Uh, first, in the case that was, that was argued not long ago uh, over uh, President Biden's, uh, the Biden administration's policy on student loan forgiveness, uh, which we're still waiting for a decision. Um, and now the court has granted cert in a case involving the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is entirely funded um, outside of the appropriations process. It'll be interesting to see the Supreme Court now focus squarely and, and repeatedly on Congress's power of the purse in administration. And so we thought we'd have a discussion about that. And I'm so glad to be joined by our two speakers today. Well, first of all, if we're having a conversation about Congress's power of the purse and, and the White House and the CFPB, who better to invite to, to join us than Mick Mulvaney? He served as the, office, uh, the director of the Office of Management and Budget uh, from 2017 to 2020. He also was acting director of the CFPB from 2017 to 2018, acting White House Chief of Staff from 2019 to 2020. And don't forget about Congress. He represented South Carolina's uh, fifth district in the House of Representatives from 2011 to 2017. After that, he served as US Special Envoy for uh, Northern Ireland from 2020 to 2021. Uh, he's now uh, co-chair of Actum, a strategic consultancy. And he is, you'll often see him uh, offering his views on, on public policy in the press, including this morning, I turned on the TV and saw you uh, talking, what were you talking about? There's been some news in the last 24 hours. I can't remember what it was yeah. about. So, yeah. <laughs> well, Mick, thanks for joining us. Thank and you. we're also very lucky to be joined uh, by our friend Michael McConnell. Michael is the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor of Law at, here, uh, at Stanford Law School, where he also directs the law school's center, uh, Constitutional Law Center. And he's a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Uh, before that, he served uh, as a circuit judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit from 2002 to 2009. He's one of the nation's leading constitutional scholars. Uh, before all that, by the way, he worked in government. He was an assistant solicitor general. And maybe most relevant of all for this conversation, you were uh, assistant general counsel for OMB. Did I have That's that right? right. My first job as a lawyer. That's great. Well, thank you both for joining who is us. The, uh, who was the director? At the it time? was Dave Stockman. Wow. That's great. That's great. Um, Let's just start with a very, very big picture question. Maybe we'll start with you, Mick. What's your basic sense of the role that Congress's power of the purse is supposed to play in modern administration? You've seen it up close. Um, yeah, I have. Thanks very much for having me. It's, I always enjoy doing these. I don't get a chance to do these enough. I always learn something. Uh, I've already learned a couple of things. If I ever go back into government, which is unlikely, I want to hire that guy who asked the, <laughs> asked the question last time of the professor. Um, and I've also learned that it's been a long time since I went to law school. Um, so I'm not going to talk about the, the Constitution as much as these folks were because they're a lot smarter than I am. I do know a little bit about being an administrator and a little bit about being a legislator. Um, the role probably should be a lot bigger than it is. Even if you disagree with one of the other positions that was taken on the, on, on the previous um, panel, I think you probably agree that things are a lot bigger now and a lot more complex than they were 100 years ago. We could probably all agree on that. Um, and it's probably not possible for a legislative body to run the government by itself. I think we all get that. So the question is, what should it do? 
Um, and maybe what it should do is use the power of the purse more to actually implement what it wants to do. Uh, it should use the ability to spend money to dictate policy. And it's not doing that. Um, for a variety of reasons we could talk about today if you want to. One of the biggest criminals, uh, one of the biggest uh, sort of difficulties I think we face is this baseline budget, this automatic spending, and this pressure to spend. This pressure to spend. Because the spending process is broken, um, there's this continuous pressure to pass massive spending bills. Remember, there's supposed to be um, a, a dozen uh, appropriation bills that get passed every single year. I think the last time that happened was 1998, something like that. Um, and there used to be government shutdowns all the time. Um, Jimmy Carter had five of them in four years with Democrats in the, in the House, Democrats in the Senate, Democrats in the White House. But they weren't that big a deal when they shut down. Um, because the government had already gone off and funded 80% of the government with these appropriations bills and didn't fund this little tiny piece of the government and then that government shut down. That part of the government shut down. What happens today is we don't pass any bills. I can't remember the last time we passed uh, an appropriation bill, a single appropriation bill. It hasn't been since I've been here. Um, we've passed some, some what we call uh, some um, multi-buses uh, where you've got four or five put together or we've passed omnibuses or cromnibuses, but we haven't passed the old-fashioned appropriation bills. And for that reason, you get to September, and if you don't pass a bill, all of the government, or at least most of the government, shuts down. Um, and for that reason, there's this tremendous pressure to simply just do what we've always done and move on to the next fiscal year. Um, so we do not use the power of the purse effectively in order to implement policy. Mostly what we do <laughs> is use it to infringe on the authority of the executive. I'll never forget, I offered a budget at the uh, State Department um, for a fairly dramatic reduction in 2017. Um, and my good friend and my senator, Lindsey Graham, uh, offered an amendment to one of the omnibuses that not only said how much money we had to spend, which is typical, told us how many people we had to employ that we shall not employ fewer than 22,500 people at the State Department. That was the legislature using the power of the purse to do that, um, to clearly infringe, I thought, on the executive branch, as opposed to doing what I think they should do, which is set policy. Uh, and they don't, um, they don't do that nearly enough. I'm not sure if that's a very good answer to get us started, but that's where we'll start with. Well, that's great, Mick. Thank you very much. Uh, Michael, at our first panel, I made sure to, to plug Ron Cass's book, so I want to make sure to plug one of your books. I think it's your most recent one, The President Who Would Not Be King, Executive Power Under the Constitution. Michael, what's your sense? Available on Amazon. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> What's your sense, as, as, first and foremost, as, as a scholar of constitutional law and constitutional history, how should we think about the power of the purse in our constitutional government? Well, I think Mick is right. The system has just completely uh, gone awry. Uh, let's talk a little bit about recent history. Uh, the, uh, the budget process was quite chaotic for most of the 20th century. Uh, and, when, and the appropriations committees would act, act completely independently. And of course, if you're in charge of, uh, of widgets, if you're on the widget committee, widgets are the most important thing. And so of course you're going to fund widgets uh, at a very high rate. And the, the effect of this was to uh, have a, a, a process which really had no budget uh, at all. And, uh, and then along comes Richard Nixon, who tries to solve this by executive fiat uh, through impoundment by refusing to spend money the Congress had passed, which was uh, uh, certainly an offense against constitutional norms, even if not uh, actual constitutional law. And Congress then passed a, uh, a bill uh, in, uh, called the, uh, the Budget Control, the Empowerment Control Act and, and Congressional Budget Reform Act. And I think we need a new bill. I think we, it, it has, I want to describe it because it actually had some good sense to it, but it, that process is completely broken down and we need a new uh, budget process. But the basic idea of that bill was that <clears throat> the budget committees uh, early on in the process, we're talking April of the, of the preceding uh, uh, fiscal year, would pass a 
budget uh, for with specifying that the ceilings for each of the major uh, spending areas <coughs> and the uh, appropriations committees would then spend within that ceiling. So this is a way to, to give a comprehensive uh, a, you know, budgeting process uh, for the national government. And the way that this was uh, sort of incentivized to get Congress to actually do it is that if they pass these, these bills, any bill which was uh, reconciling uh, the spending to the budget would then be exempted from the filibuster. We see that, that's now used yep. for nefarious purposes. <laughs> but the original purpose was to uh, give a system in which uh, we would actually have a budget. But what's happened now is they don't do the budget. Uh, the appropriations bills uh, are uh, don't actually exist anymore. You wait, it, basically you go until the, the very uh, uh, last minute to the 11th hour, and then you have two different kinds of crisis. One crisis is the lack of an appropriation, and so uh, then you have a government shutdown, so so called. It's a it's a we could talk about shutdowns. I I when I was at OMB, I helped uh, preside over one of the uh, you know to do the deep preside is the wrong word. I was the low lowest lawyer in the in the in the hierarchy, but helped work out the the, the, direct, the mechanisms the for the first shutdown. Gets to shut the government down. So <laughs> uh, I, I, that was a great lesson for me. So, so you have shutdowns. That's a terrible way to govern. And then the other kind of crisis that we have is the debt ceiling crisis. Well, <coughs> the, the Constitution is very clear uh, that Congress has to authorize borrowing. And people forget that there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is because we don't actually want to have uh, infinite piling up of a, of a government debt uh, you know, greatly, ex uh, uh, greatly exceeding the growth of the economy. It's okay to have a government debt. Now, Hamilton made that very clear in, 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 a, in a wonderfully reasoned uh, uh, papers, but you don't, but when it, when it expands well beyond the expansion of the economy, it, it gets to be a, a very serious problem. I think we are really uh, facing a, 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 you know, a disaster, an impending, slowly uh, approaching disaster, and at some point there's going to be a tipping point. Young people should be furious at what's being done to them because it will not be very long before there is no money left. We are going to be spending so much money paying the interest on the debt that there's not going to be anything left for, uh, for ordinary spending unless we borrow still more and it's easy to see how that, that, that way uh, be dragons. Right, so the, the um, <clears throat> I think we need to have a whole new system uh, in which the uh, in, in which the Congress commits itself to a budget at the beginning with an actual budget with the debt ceiling increased as a result of a actual vote and deliberation before the money is spent so that the choice can be made, do we want to borrow more, do we want to spend less, do we want to tax more? They need to make that choice rather than, and, and make that choice in the full glare of, of public opinion, rather than making each, by the time they increase the debt limit, it's like they have to because it, the, the world will come to an end. But you know, each of these crises has the effect of eliminating actual trade-offs and deliberations that could lead to intelligent budgetary Professor, policy. Professor, didn't they try that though? Wasn't that the Gephardt rule? It used to be if you passed a budget, or you passed an appropriations bill, it automatically deemed to raise the debt ceiling so there was not a separate vote, and it <laughs> didn't seem to act as a, a check against spending and the debt. No, I think there needs to be a separate vote okay. so that, I 
I think congressmen have to say to their, to their uh, constituents, this is how we're going to fund each, each bit of spending. We're gonna fund it. Here's the revenue that's already coming in. Here's the new revenue if we wanna increase taxes. And here's the addition to the national debt that we're going to incur. That's part of the spending bill. Yeah. Uh, Michael, a moment ago, you referred to reaching a tipping point. If, if just to focus on that for a second, I feel like I've been hearing people for 20, 30, 40 years say we're at a tipping point. Somehow, it never quite tips. It kind of wobbles, but never falls down. Uh, are, Mick, are we at a tipping point? I, uh, I have a very clear image of one of my first weeks in Congress back in 2011. I'm walking through the tunnel with one of the, um, the old bulls, a Republican. Can't remember, I, I remember who it is, I won't tell you, it's not relevant. And I introduced myself, and he was on the budget committee with me at the time, and we'd been to a couple meetings before, and I had sort of started to voice my opinion about spending and deficits and so forth. He goes, oh, well, Mayday, I've heard about you. You're one of those fiscal hawks. I love you guys. You know what? I remember I was here when, uh, when, when Reagan was here, and you guys came, and you left, and I was still here. And then Newt came, and you guys came in, and you, you were here, and you know, I was here, and then you guys left, and I was still here. And I see you're here. Welcome back. It's great. Love this tea party thing. It's great. I got news for you. You're going to be gone. I'm still going to be here. And he still is. Um, and uh, there are folks who love to spend money on both sides of the aisle. There's no question about it. So, yeah, yeah we've been talking about tipping points since Reagan. I remember he was the one uh, back when Stockman was, uh, when you were in, the, were you in office, he gave that very famous speech with a stack of money on the desk saying that that is a stack of dollar bills to the moon or something like that. So we've been having this conversation, and I do feel at times like the guy standing on the corner um, with the sign that says, you know, repent the end is at hand, sooner or later that guy's going to be right, but hasn't been. Um, that's sort of how I feel. Uh, I am glad that at least now um, it's starting to get a little bit more attention. Uh, I'm encouraged by uh, the fact that the last administration when I first got there, I did not know Stephen Mnuchin very well. Stephen was probably not a Republican, certainly wasn't a fiscal conservative at the outset of the administration, but by the end was the, was the fiscal conservative's best friend. Uh, so for me and, and Russ Vogt, who was running OMB at the time, at the end, it was nice to have somebody else there, and he came to that by an understanding of what the facts actually were. He was the guy that actually had to pay the debt. And he'd go around and go, holy crap, we can't continue to spend this much money. So yeah. I, I'm somewhat encouraged by the fact that when smart people actually sit down to look at this, um, they might actually come to the understanding that we cannot continue this way. Do I, are we gonna, is it going to end tomorrow? I have no idea. Um, you know, I remember in 2011 there were some ideas about fixing Social Security and they said, well, we can't do that because it would add a trillion dollars to the debt. I think the total debt at that time was 10 or 12 trillion dollars. Yeah. So think of all the things we could have done um, to fix the country with all this money that we spent on other things. But no, are we on the precipice? I have no idea. All I know is that you do get to the point where if your debt is growing faster than your GDP, you've got a real problem. Mick, the point about uh, Secretary Mnuchin is interesting. Uh, where you stand often depends on where you sit. And you've had seats at each end of Pennsylvania Avenue. I'm curious how your view of these issues, both the policy aspect and just the basic constitutional mechanics of it all, how did it, how if at all, did it change or, or recalibrate or, or, or just expand from your time in Congress to then coming to the executive branch and then leading a, you know, a somewhat independent agency? Uh, I really came to hate the Senate, um, but that's another story entirely. <laughs> I'm con absolutely convinced if the Republic fails, it will be the Senate's fault um, because they seem to be more interested in their rules than they are in the Constitution, but that's another story entirely. And I know my Senate friends, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, um, but not entirely. No, what I, what I came to learn was a, a couple different things. Uh, first of all, Congress does not understand how the government works, okay? Congress does not understand. Most people who work for the government don't understand how the government works. That's not their fault. It doesn't mean they're stupid people. It just means the government is a very, very complex thing. Um, it's one of the, OMB is the greatest place in the whole world to work if you are a geek when it comes to government because you get to see everything. All the veils are pulled back and you get to see everything. And when I saw everything, it scared me to death. 
um, just because I realized how little influence the elected officials really had. I don't know if the folks who were on the previous panel were, are still here or not, but one of the questions I would have asked is, look, what, how you feel about Chevron deference, how you feel about the history and, and white men versus whatever, can we all agree at least that maybe policies are best set by elected officials? Is that a fundamental underpinning of what it means to be a part of the American government? The elected people get to make decisions. That way, if you don't like the decisions, you can change the people making decisions. One of the starkest realities I learned was that that's not how it works. Okay? A disturbingly high level of the policies that this government takes are made by the people that uh, you will never ever elect, that you will probably never see. Um, it was done on purpose, by the way. The one place you sort of had some insight into it uh, was at the creation of the CFPB when Elizabeth Warren really thought she was creating the ideal progressive entity. Okay? What do I mean by that? Well, it was going to be beyond politics. It was too important. Consumer protection is just too important for politics. We can't have policies changing all the time. We have to have something that the professionals can handle. So we're going to remove this from politics, number one. Number two, we're going to remove it from the appropriation process. We'll talk about that maybe with the lawsuit in a second. Because, you know, when Congress spends money on things, they have this nasty habit of wanting to know how it's spent every time, or every now and then. Not nearly enough, but they can. They can call you in and give you a hard time if you are spending their money, but if you're not spending their money, it creates that distance. Then, um, and this was one of the most disturbing things that I heard when I worked there, the hiring process. They started this from scratch. Remember, the CFPB did not exist. Okay? And the stories that I was told when I gave in there was that there was a method that they, how they, how they peopled up, how they staffed up, was that they would go to job fairs at universities. And they would go the night before the job fair to the Democrat club, the progressive student club, the left-leaning club, whatever, and say, hey, by the way, we got a job fair tomorrow, okay? Now, if you come in tomorrow and you use these four words, we'll know you're one of us. And it will dramatically increase the chance of you getting hired by us, okay? And that's how they started to staff up. And that's how they continue to staff up. I don't know if it was 99% of the CFPB that, that voted against Donald Trump in 2016, but it was close. There were a couple folks who probably didn't, but not very many. Um, and then they took that group and they decided they could make it reinforce it. People forget now that when I was named the director, Richard Cordray, who was leaving, was of the opinion he had the right to name his successor. Think about that for a second. Someone who's appointed, not, not elected by you, was taking the, the position that was up to him to appoint his successor, Leander English, who I'd never met, by the way. Um, but that was what they believed, was this was theirs. And it was not, not at all responsive to the people who were elected. And it was done that way on purpose. That is an extreme case, um, but that exists at HHS, it exists at the State Department, it exists at, uh, at, at, at most of the agencies I worked at. One of the things I loved about working at OMB was the one place where I worked, and I ran three federal agencies of different sizes. The one place I worked where I was absolutely convinced that the overwhelming majority of people who were working there were working just as hard for Donald Trump on January 21st of 2017 as they were working for Barack Obama on January 19th of 2016. And as a citizen, regardless of where I am in my political standpoint, that's what I want. Because if you're a progressive voter, the last thing you want is an agency that's run by a bunch of conservatives. Um, and you want those bureaucrats that you cannot unelect to work as hard for both sides of the aisle as they can. And that was the lesson I took is that that's not how the town works. Yeah, Michael, can we talk a little about the CFPB? Um, I said at the outset, in administrative law, power of the purse is a small or non-existent issue until now. And somewhat also in constitutional law, where we have a century of doctrines and debates about presidential power and independent agencies. There have been a few cases in the court about agency user fees or things like that, but there isn't a huge body of doctrine around Congress's power of the purse and the agencies. I remember when Dodd-Frank was being debated, 
Um, in fact, it occurred to me just now, sitting here, it was in, I was in this room, the Federal Society had a conference, the speakers were at that end of the table, um, Boyden Gray, who's here and who I wound up working at his law firm on the issue, uh, he was on the panel and he was talking about the CFPB's own power of its own purse and how dangerous that was, and I remember thinking, that's a, that's a, a good point, but there isn't any case law around it. And now here we are. So that's a long way of asking. As you've watched the CFPB issue come together, we have the Fifth Circuit decision, now the Second Circuit decision. How do you think through the constitutionality or unconstitutionality of the CFPB's independent funding? So first, let's talk about why the CFPB is different. Yeah, And then I want to talk about why the courts have played, there's no law out there. Uh, so the CFPB is, is different, so it's, there are two different ways uh, in, in, which, uh, in which Congress has, has uh, basically taken itself out of uh, the, the, the picture. Uh, the first is the, uh, is that the appropriations for uh, the CFPB are not done by Congress. CFPB goes to the Federal Reserve and the CFPB is funded by the profits that the Federal Reserve makes on its monetary operations. And so the money is not coming from Congress. Uh, the the second thing, uh, and, and that's but that's not that's that's highly unusual, but not absolutely unique. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Federal Reserve itself yeah. funded funds itself from its own uh, operations. In addition to that, <clears throat> the money is actually defined as not being an appropriation. So actually, if you look at the government's briefs in defense of the CFPB in the current case, uh, the government analogizes this uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, these permanent appropriations that we have for a number of different, there are lots of permanent appropriations. Uh, well, they say that the CFPB is no different from that because it doesn't require a separate vote each budget season from Congress deciding how much it is. But it's actually more extreme. The CFPB is more extreme than that because its spending is actually defined by the statute as not being an appropriation. What is the significance of this? It's that Congress <clears throat> exercises its oversight through uh, the, the mechanism of uh, controlling the appropriation. So even if it's a permanent appropriation, Congress still is it's still from Congress, and Congress still has the oversight authority. But this means that when Congress calls the CFPB director before it to, you know, ask questions, why are you doing that? Why are you? Why aren't you doing this? What's the problem with that? Have to tell them. Uh, they actually do not have the uh, the authority. They have no. They have no. Uh, is this right? You tell me. Well, I know because I, I went to the. I don't know if you. There's no reason for you to know this, but I got called to a hearing in the, in the Senate was a CFPB director. I'm like, look, I'm here. Because I want to be here, but the statute doesn't require me to be here. I don't even have to do this. I, I will sit here. No, excuse me. I have to appear. The statute says that the director must appear once a year before the House and the Senate. Okay. Other parts of Dodd-Frank say that people similarly situated have to appear and answer questions. So the lawyers will, will know that if one section says I have to appear, but you have to appear and answer questions, and we're in the same statute, then the presumption is I didn't have to answer any questions. So I showed up and said, look, I have to be here, but I don't have to answer a damn thing you people are asking me. Um, they loved that. They thought that was a lot of fun. And even if you had to answer, because they don't have any uh, authority over you, they yeah. can't, they can't. The answer could be because I wanted to. So it's quite different from uh, if the Secretary of Defense appears uh, and they don't like what he's doing, they can cut the, mm -hmm. uh, they can cut the budget. But uh, this, is a, this is a constitutional anomaly and um, <clears throat> I wouldn't be surprised if the court uh, finds that aspect unconstitutional. But <clears throat> uh, there's a reason why there isn't any law out there. There is some law out there, but not very much. And the reason is standing doctrine. Uh, that the, 
The courts don't decide cases just because there's a constitutional violation. The plaintiff bringing the case has to have been, has to have suffered uh, actual personal injury of some sort. And uh, way back in the 1920s, in a case called Frothingham against Mellon, the Supreme Court held that an individual federal taxpayer is not sufficiently hurt when money is being spent unconstitutionally. So he has no standing to challenge uh, spending. And that means that uh, this whole area of the congressional uh, power of the purse is, uh, is basically off the table, except in unusual circumstances. The uh, Biden student loan case, for example, if it gets to the merits, I think the merits are pretty clear in favor of the plaintiffs. That is, the the uh, uh, the spending is not authorized by the by the statute. Uh, but the hard question is, does anybody have standing to challenge it? And they have come up with the plaintiffs have come up with some ingenious theories and maybe they'll get in, maybe they'll have standing, but it requires like a, like a, uh, it, it, an intricate, you know, set of, you know, you know, complicated contrivances basically to get uh, into in court. Uh, now I, <laughs> I wonder whether Frothingham should be reconsidered. Frothingham is actually a different kind of case. <clears throat> it was not a challenge to uh, whether the spending was illegal. Uh, it was a challenge to whether the congressional statute uh, that provided the spending exceeded the uh, Congress's uh, spending power. Well, th that is a very weird case because Congress's spending power is virtually unlimited. In fact, the 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 uh, uh, the the, what the constitutional, uh, Constitution says is that Congress can spend in, in, in pursuit of the general welfare. Well, I don't think the courts are ever going to say anything that Congress, is, Congress passes is outside that. But it's a very different matter when the executive branch spends money yeah. that hasn't been properly appropriated. Professor, come back for a second. You, start, you started down someplace, and I, I was making a note to myself, because the CFPB is funded out of the profits of the Fed. That's absolutely right. I could go down uh, and literally on a napkin write, please give me $180 million, and they would have to do that. That's not an exaggeration. But what if the Fed doesn't have any profits? Um, everybody knows why SVB Bank failed. They've, they failed in large part because they had duration risk. They held a lot of short-term uh, treasury notes that lost their value when interest rates went up and they were forced to sell those in order to, to liquidate some of their deposits and so forth. Who's the largest holder of short-term duration risk bonds in the world? The Fed. They've lost in excess of a trillion dollars if they had to mark that stuff to market. It's generally accepted they are going to lose money this year. So where does the CFPB get its money if its money comes as a percentage of the profits of the Fed? I never thought about now, that. Now, Cordray thought about that because he's, he's a smart guy. My predecessor, Richard Cordray, thought about that. And one of the things he had been doing was asking for more money than he needed. And he had built up a slush fund of several hundred million dollars, which is the reason everybody remembers back. There's no reason to remember this, but my first quarter there, we asked for zero dollars yeah, to run the agency because I was trying to spend down the slush fund. And we did. We spent the slush fund down to zero. And I have no idea if uh, Rohit has been able to spend it up again and, and squirrel that money away because Cordray, I think, knew that if there came a time that either they tried to put him on appropriations or the Fed wasn't making any money, he would still have money to run the place. But I don't know where they're going to get the money to run the place next year. Yeah, and it, I, I might be wrong, but the statute might also be written in terms of, of the agency's operating expenses, or sorry, the Fed's operating expenses, which itself raises an interesting question. I think it's a percentage, I think it? it's a percentage of their profits. No, so I was wondering if it, if, if it had been expenses, I would have wondered, yeah. well, what happens if the Fed doesn't have, the pro, doesn't have a surplus to give to the agency? Yep. But let, let me ask you a question, Mick. Um, so I kept an eye on this issue over the years. I, I said Boyden piqued my interest in it at the start. And one thing I always noticed over the years was um, when the CFPB would put out its annual reports, 
it would often have statements, multiple statements saying, we are independent from the appropriations process, mm -hmm. we do not receive appropriations, we are a non-appropriated agency, and sometimes the director would say that in, in, at hearings. So it's interesting now to see the CFPB say, oh, actually, our money is appropriated. Um, how do you think the, the courts should, should think about the CFPB's own statements? Did it turn out that, sorry, Mick, you were actually wrong the whole time? Um, sometimes wisdom comes late. Um, how should the courts think about the, the CFPB statements? I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure with the justification for the statement we're appropriated because yeah. I know what an appropriation bill looks like and I'm pretty sure there's no line item for the CFPB. In fact, yeah. there isn't. Yeah. I don't care if it's an individual appropriations bill, if it's, if it's an omnibus bill. There, there's nothing coming out of the white domed building at the end of Pennsylvania that says this is money for the CFPB. That just doesn't happen. The, the, the funding flow is there's a piece of paper that leaves the office of the director of the CFPB. It is taken down to the Fed and they say, please move money into this account and they move money into that account. That is the process. Yeah. So I'm not sure how Rohit is taking the position that it is appropriate. Yeah. Um, in any event, I would hope the court would simply look at the statute. It doesn't make a difference what I say how it works. It doesn't make a difference what uh, Mr. Chopra says about how it works. The statute is the statute. You hope that's, that's what they'd look at. Yeah. Michael, can I ask you a question about the constitutional text? And I'm, I, we didn't pre-talk this part of it, so I'm putting you on the spot. It may just be a question for further research. But and I'll probably get the constitutional text wrong, but I think the provision is no money shall be drawn yeah. from the Treasury without an appropriation made by law. Well, the CFPB's money, as, as was mentioned, doesn't come from the Treasury directly, it comes from the Fed. And so I'm wondering how the constitutional issue plays out. I look at it and I say, well, there's another part of Dodd-Frank that requires all Fed surplus to flow through to the Treasury. So to the extent the CFPB is taking Fed funds, it's drawing it out of what the Treasury would receive. That's, I'd like to think that's a reasonable way of looking at it, but they're not actually taking the money directly from the Treasury. As Mick said, the, the letter goes to the CFPB director, and I've looked up the letters. They're, they are kind of hilarious. It's like one page. Please give me my hundreds of millions of dollars now. It's a pretty sweet deal. But um, they're not sending I it to the Treasury. To, I wanted to do one on a napkin to see if they take yeah. it. I think they probably would. They probably would have had to. Michael, uh, that's a, my question is a long meandering way of saying, you might look at that constitutional provision and say that's just a limit on agencies. They can't spend money that's been, that hasn't been appropriated by law. But the constitutional argument in the CFPB case is this is a limit on Congress too. Again, I hate to put you on the spot, but how would you think through that issue? So first of all, I think it is true that because the uh, Fed's uh, profits do flow back to the Treasury that it ought to be uh, looked at that way, but I don't, but uh, Congress has solved this problem for us. It has passed a, a statute, long-standing statute called the Anti-Deficiency Act, uh, which uh, does not, which uh, prevents uh, agencies of the government from operating on on funds that come from outside the treasury. So, um, so for example, when you go into a national park, there's usually a little uh, collection box there in the front, and uh, and you can put ten dollars or whatever uh, into uh, to support that park. And not, you're not, not and, and you might think, oh well, I'm that's not Congress appropriating money, but Congress has actually appropriated the contributions that go to the park to that to the park that people donate it to. It's actually an appropriation. Uh, the uh, so money from outside is treated as uh, uh, as treasury money, and if it weren't so, then we could have all kinds of shenanigans uh, going on with private funding of of uh, you know operations of government that you know that would be outside of the governmental process. You the, just think what George Soros could do with that. Yeah. Has the Federal Reserve's funding mechanism ever been challenged constitutionally? Because you got to think if the Federal Reserve's structure is, has been found constitutional, the CFPB is going to be found constitutional. It's yeah. sort of derivative. At least that's the argument. Has anybody ever, I don't know the answer to this question, has anybody ever challenged the, the constitutional structure of the funding the Fed? Sure. No one's ever challenged it. I'm not sure anyone would have standing. Hmm. I also am not, I just don't know. I, I haven't studied the Federal Reserve's uh, 
uh, statutory framework in this respect, uh, I th would have thought that the money that they spend is considered to be appropriated funds. Okay. I just don't. I, I just don't know. Yeah. And there is that. I've wondered about that, and then the added complication of: is there a difference between an agency and the Fed? Is all, and before the Bank of the United States has always occupied an interesting corner of constitutional history. But um, is there a difference between an agency generating its own funds, yeah. spending them, versus another agency sort of reaching into a different agency and taking its funds? Again, these are all things that there really isn't a roadmap for, and it's, it, you wonder how the court's going to reason through Here's it. Here's something you guys could look at. I don't know the size of the Fed balance sheet. Is it $9 trillion, something like that? And they have a really good year. They could make a trillion dollars. Okay? That, that could run most of the government. Could you end up in a circumstance where the Federal Reserve is actually funding a large portion of the, they, I mean, if they can use the model for the CFPB, why yeah. can't they use it for other things, yeah. in theory at least? When Dodd-Frank was enacted, actually, a number of the other independent commission leaders, I think it was the chair of then of the SEC, the CFTC, and one other agency, each of them separately went on the record saying, we would love to have this too. <laughs> and so I think it's an interesting question, if the court does affirm the CFPB funding structure, what incentives are they creating for Congress to actually draw more regulatory budgets from the Fed rather than from appropriation. But I, I digress. I do want to talk about the student loan case a little bit. Um, uh, the other reason why I invited you two in particular is you two were together on a brief that went to the Supreme Court um, in the student loan cases. And when the brief was, after the brief was filed, the, the columnist George Will did an entire column about your brief uh, where he referred to the 11 signatories on the brief and others included uh, Bill Barr, uh, John Kogan, your colleague at Hoover, John Taylor from Hoover, Michael McKay, uh, and others. George Will referred to you all as the Magnificent Eleven. We should all be so lucky to have, have a column like that written about us. What's your view of the Biden administration case, Michael? Where, where is this headed? You said there's a, the question of standing and then the merits. We could talk about standing if you like, or we could, we could bracket that and just go right to the merits. Where do you think this case is headed? And obviously you filed a brief, so you have an argument in it, but could you take a, a step back? Yes, well, uh, well, let's just go to the merits. Uh, there's several interesting legal questions, but I don't actually think that they're difficult. Uh, one question is whether foregoing Revenue, what, but basically, this is it isn't as if the loan, loan forgiveness sends out checks, right? The, the checks went out long ago, it's, it's foregoing uh, revenue, and so is that, uh, uh, is that an expenditure? And the answer under you know, Congress has again answered that question for us that the foregoing of revenue is in fact. Uh, treated as an appropriation and it is scored for budget purposes uh, in the year in which it's forgiven so that the uh, $453 billion is actually right there uh, in the uh, uh, in the uh, in the in the scoring for the for the budget. So when when you hear that the debt limit is coming in what three months at least or however however soon it is, I think three months of that is actually the uh, loan forgiveness uh, wow. uh, 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 problem. So I think that issue is not. Uh, is not actually uh, legitimate. It's so a real tell me, question. You tell me that money's built into the projections for when the, we hit the debt ceiling? That's my understanding. So what you're telling me then, if, if you passed a bill that undid the student loan program, that you'd get another three months before you I think the that's right. Thank you. I think that's right. I mean, it's... I, I, I have a phone call to make when this Because is of the so. fact that, of course, the money doesn't actually come in this yeah. year, but, but in it the, the way the statute is worded, it's uh, as an accounting matter, it, uh, it comes... Uh, so, uh, and then the... So, so the, the Biden administration doesn't claim the constitutional right to do this. What they claim is that they have statutory authority to do it. Right. And it's really kind of interesting. You watch the way this came up. There's been a lot of demand within the Democratic Party uh, to do this. And Elizabeth Warren has, has sent a letter saying that this is uh, possible. But the old theory was 
because the Secretary of Education has the power to uh, negotiate uh, changes in the loan. That would be, imagine, just like any, any debtor who is uh, in default of a loan can negotiate with the bank and the bank will say, well, okay, we'll, we'll reduce it if we, you know, you, you only have to pay this amount or we'll stretch it out or whatever. The Secretary of Education has that authority and the original theory was, well, uh, all, let's just negotiate it down to, you don't have to pay anything ever. Uh, and I think the lawyers basically concluded that that was too preposterous to, uh, 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 to be sustained. So they went to an entirely different theory under a statute that was passed right after 9-11 uh, uh, when, uh, uh, when a number of, of, of uh, military personnel were being sent abroad and you had things like uh, you know people being called up from the reserves and so forth and when they and they were unable to meet their uh, student loans because suddenly instead of making their ordinary salaries as a dentist or whatever they happened to be uh, they were just in the reserves and so this statute uh, provided gave the uh, secretary the authority to to modify uh, their uh, uh, their their debts but the the interesting thing about the statute is that it actually uses the word direct twice it's only it's 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 the beneficiaries have to have had they, they have to have suffered loss directly as a result of the emergency mm. and the uh, the loss has to have been direct so direct is in there twice well I ask you to student loan holders is their burden the problem that they're suffering directly caused by the COVID emergency I think the answer to that is clearly not uh, in fact uh, if anything uh, college graduates did pretty well uh, it's the it's the working stiffs who actually have to show up to physically to work who suffered the most from uh, uh, from the COVID catastrophe, uh, not not uh, students. So, I I, the, I think the directness here, when Congress specifies directly, they're not just blowing smoke. They mean that there has to be a direct causal relationship. I don't see it being there. Then there's the fact that it's an emergency. What the statute says is you know military national disaster uh, natural disaster or other emergency well maybe maybe COVID counts as an emergency uh, but isn't it over I thought it was over Congress just passed a law saying it's over uh, Biden has declared that it will be over as of what May 23rd. So it's a, I think it's at least possible that the Supreme Court will say, hey, this case is over because there is no emergency. Let me follow up that and then I'll have a question for Mick. But just to follow up, what you said before about students in general, they, they may have done better actually during, or sorry, college graduates may have done better during COVID than others. I mean, say that there are individuals college graduates who can show that they actually did suffer real financial harm because of the pandemic while the pandemic was an emergency. If the administration had written their policy along those lines and, and required individual applicants to show that direct harm, that might be a, a closer case under the HEROES Act, right? It would at least be easier to defend. You still have some other problems yeah. too, but easier to defend. Okay. Uh, Mick, anything you want to react to there? Go ahead or else I have a, have a question. Yeah, a, a couple things. First of all, does anybody re remember why we're having this conversation as a federal issue? As to why the federal government's involved in student loans? Sorry? Took them over as part of the Affordable Care Act. It was how they paid, they took the profits from student lending as a way to do an offset to pay for the Affordable Care Act. That's the genesis of, of part of this discussion. Um, yeah, because we, we, the taxpayers, were going to make money off doing this. That's right. You, you like lending money for profit. And, and now it's $453 billion out of the door. 
which makes you wonder as to whether or not the Affordable Care Act math was done properly, but that's another story entirely. Um, I worry about the precedent, I do, because I, I, listen, I, I will be completely honest, I struggled a little bit practically, not philosophically, but practically with signing the, um, with signing the amicus, because I had done the same thing. We, create, we, we declared a national emergency for the purpose of building a wall on the southern border, okay? And we, we did that because we could, okay? I, I, I did it. So look, this is, this is the policy of the president. It's not illegal. I want you to go out and find me a statute that lets me do this. And we did it. And they're doing the same thing. It comes back to the conversation I had before for the previous panel, whether you're progressive or, or, or conservative, do you really want unelected officials making these kinds of decisions? Because if this, if this holds up, okay, if this holds up, I, I want to be the OMB director for a really, really conservative president who says, you know what, Mick, I can't pass a tax bill. I can't get it through the legislature. Can you go out and find me some way to do tax forgiveness? Biden did loan forgiveness for a bunch of people. Find me a statute that gives me the right to forgive people their taxes so I can effectively, they're effectively giving student loan forgiveness, will effectively do a tax cut. I hope that stops. Uh, and I, this is the opportunity to stop it, because if it doesn't, I, I know what levers you can pull inside a government. I know that, you know, give me the inch, we can take the mile, and future administrations are going to do it. I hope the Supreme Court takes the step to shut this down, which is why I signed the amicus. Well, the forgiveness issue, it, it seems an echo of a debate administrative lawyers were having 10 years earlier about executive power and waivers. One of the big issues was administrations finding more and more ways to make policy, not by imposing new burdens, but just by waiving laws. And it seems that this is, is an echo of that, right? A way to, to subsidize, not by handing out uh, money, but just by refusing to, to collect it. And so that's the question I was gonna ask. As somebody who's been at the White House at OMB, um, you just mentioned that this could be the first of many such things. Are there, you know, are there other examples of, of how uh, an administration of either ideological or party affiliation might just do more with the purse by not collecting money from people? Uh, well, I don't know about not collecting money. I was, when they were debating the Inflation Reduction Act, I could not help, which essentially it's a green energy bill, which I, again, call it what you want to, but it's a green, it's a, it's a, it's a large green energy bill. I think they admit now that it's a large green energy bill. In the back of my mind, I kept wondering, if they can't pass this, when do they declare a climate emergency that opens up all these authorities that we claimed in order to, to, to secure the southern border? So that was, I was worried about the precedent that we had set, that we were building off of previous precedent, and that, that it just gets re, reaffirmed. I, I don't know about the, the waiver. I haven't given that um, much thought, other than the example I just came up with, which is maybe we don't collect your taxes. Well, in our brief, we list examples from each of the, from three or four of the past administrations right. yeah. uh, where uh, uh, the administration uh, interpreted statutes in a way which is, you know, uh, you know, quite fanciful. Uh, yep. uh, my particular favorite is TARP with uh, George Bush, uh, <coughs> and, 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 and they wanted to uh, subsidize the automobile companies. And uh, Congress, that was just a step too far for Congress. So Congress didn't give them the money to, uh, 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 you know, to subsidize insurance companies. What did the administration do? They defined auto companies as banks mm -hmm. and gave them money anyway. Why are they banks? I, I see surprised expressions out there. Well, uh, automobile companies have uh, you know, extend credit to people when they're buying cars. Think of the GMAC. That's well, good enough. I have other questions I could ask, but why don't we open the floor up. If anybody has a question for our speakers, raise your hand and, and the microphone will find you. And by the way, while you're all raising <laughs> your hands at once, um, it's a, it is a little hard to hear up here, so please do uh, speak clearly. I might have to repeat the question. We'll start with uh, Jeff Lubbers in the back. Thank you. Um, I'd like to know about whether the... the, the, the little louder, please. 
I'd like to know whether the CFPB case is distinguishable from all the user fee programs that many agencies operate. I know there's a statute that was passed in the 50s, the Independent Office Appropriations Act, that authorizes agencies to use user fee programs, and they collect a lot of money. Now maybe the answer is, as uh, Judge McConnell said, was they're just a, another species of appropriations. But is that the case? And if that's the case, why couldn't we solve the CFPB problem by saying that those are also a species of appropriation? So the, the question is, um, other agencies have the power to, to obtain money through license fees and so on. I think Michael Grieva, who's here, may have written about that once in the context of the, of the FCC. Is this CFPB case, if the court does rule against the CFPB, and we don't know that it will, the Second Circuit just ruled in favor of the CFPB, but if the court strikes down the CFPB's independent funding, why isn't that the end to all agency licensing fees and other sources of revenue? My, I could be wrong, and maybe Michael Grieva will correct me. He has done that before. Um, the, uh, but my, my understanding is that most licensing fees actually go into the Treasury and are then appropriated by Congress. And I can assure you the Fed doesn't use the CFPB. I know that's not a determining factor here, but uh, the banks would never pay for it. <laughs> they hate the place. Um, so I'm not, I guess if your question is, could they switch the funding and charge banks a fee for this? Maybe, maybe, that, would, maybe that would get you into that loophole. But uh, uh, right now, if the Fed is paying for it, they're not, they're not a user. Yeah. A question over here, uh, Don Elliott. Well, it's, it's right behind you, Don. Yeah, it's, it's really a comment because I've also written about this Independent Offices Appropriation Act and it is specifically an exception to the Anti-Deficiency Act. Hmm. But the money does go into the Treasury. Interesting. And there are also limits as to what can be charged for. I mean, it's, you have to, there's, there's a whole lore about it, including some really excellent OMB guidance documents. Don, could you maybe, while you have the microphone, could you maybe spell the point out a little bit more? How then do you see the, the, the contrast or, or comparison between those agency revenues and, and the CFPB to the extent you, you've looked at it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, Quite, quite clear that uh, the uh, Supreme Court should should say the loan forgiveness is uh, not not permitted, and I don't really see it as uh, inconsistent at all with the Independent Offices Appropriations Act and and the charging of user fees. Um, user fees are only permitted under that where somebody's getting a special benefit not available to the general public. So there, it's so it's it's a it's a constrained uh, uh, statute. Okay, thanks, Don. So another hand up here. Uh, in the middle, the microphone's coming to you. Thank you. Uh, my question specifically for Mr. Mulvaney, but either panelist can answer it. Now, uh, I said nice things about you at the beginning of this, so please be gentle on. with your questions. Uh, Grover Norquist used to say that he wants a government that he could strangle in a bathtub, famously, and that was normally the rallying cry of conservatives uh, on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. It's, it's great politics for Congress people, especially Republicans, conservatives, Tea Party folks, to say, I'm going to strangle in a bathtub, or some version of that, the unelected bureaucrats. But what about at the other end, when a Republican or a conservative actually gets the chance to grab those reins, uh, what does that look like? I mean, you've been that. You've been a conservative who's been in the administrative state. Is there a fundamental uh, contradiction here? Can you be a conservative in the administrative state? Is there really a difference between a conservative and a progressive at OIRA or any one of these faceless agencies at the end of the day when you have to keep the lights on? I mean, what does it actually look like? I'm gonna get in a lot of trouble. Is this, is this broadcast? Uh, yeah live stream to audiences worldwide. Uh, all right, well then there's a very famous high-profile Republican who shall remain nameless who wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal recently extorting us to try and fix entitlement spending. And I wrote a response, I didn't send it in because I was afraid they might print it, that said, wow, that guy seems really, really smart. And he's absolutely right when he deals with the difficulties that we face and the importance of fixing entitlements. I think it would be really cool if that person would run for office. And how neat would it be if that person got elected to office? And how neat would it be if that person then got elected to, say, the Speaker of the House? 
and then was in charge of the House when the Republicans, who are like-minded, controlled the Senate and the White House. We might actually have a chance to fix something. I didn't send it in for reasons that you probably recognize why. Um, but no, we, we dropped the ball. We did. When, when we were in charge of the House and the Senate and the White House, um, in 2017 and 2018, we grew spending faster than the last two years of the Obama administration. The budget that I wrote, which was the last budget that was written that actually balances in 10 years, um, was decried by my own party as being dead on arrival and outrageous and just it would never get the time of day. Republicans love spending much uh, money as much as Democrats do. They just like spending it on different things. Which is why I'm so frustrated now when they're down there talking about fixing things during the debt ceiling crisis. We have a five vote majority in the House, no, mo no majority in the Senate, we don't control the White House. If we we're going to fix things, we should have done it in 2017 and 2018. And Donald Trump, for, though he was not known as a fiscal conservative, took the budget that we wrote and said, okay, I can back this. He got enough money for his programs that he let us pretty much do whatever we wanted to with other things, including entitlement spending. By the way, the Trump budget in 2017 was the largest proposed entitlement reduction in history. And it yet did not touch old age uh, income for Social Security and did not touch mainline Medicare. We dealt with everything else. That's how big mandatory and entitlement spending is. There's so much of it out there that's not just Social Security mainline and Medicare mainline. And we, 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 we fixed that. And our own party made fun of us on television. And made it, made, I think one of them actually threw the, threw the document in the trash can on television as a way to drive home how unserious they thought the document was. So yeah, I have a lot of difficulty with my own party when it comes to spending money. Uh, and I'm not up here saying that this is a Republican versus Democrat thing. You don't get $31 trillion in debt by one party doing it to you. I don't know if that answers your question, other than we've lost some opportunities and we've lost some moral high ground and we have to do a lot of work to get it back and I don't think we're gonna get it back between now and the debt ceiling discussion. Sorry for the, no, no. Sorry for the campaign speech. Uh, Mick, Michael, let's take a step back. I've got another sort of big picture question about the constitutional system and spending. Um, at the beginning of our conversation, you both alluded to the fact that now, to the extent that Congress is involved in spending, it all happens sort of at once in a, often an emergency posture. There's an omnibus bill. Everything comes down to one bill. It's not, a, what was it, 13 appropriations bills? Once upon a time. And I'm just curious, Mick, since you've been on both the congressional side of those debates and the White House side of those debates, how does the power dynamic, power dynamic between Congress and the president change? when it goes from 13 appropriation bills over the course of a year to everything everywhere all at once in one big showdown at the last minute. It's not, it's not, it's not um, legislative versus, versus executive, it's the parties. The Republicans always get, always get blamed for shutdown, regardless of where they are. Um, so if you had a, a Republican president um, you know, vetoing a Democrat spending bill, the Republican president would get charged with the shutdown. If you had a, a Republican House and a Democrat president, and the Democrat president vetoed the spending bill, the Republicans would get charged with the shutdown because they didn't spend enough money to satisfy the president. So it's not, it's, it's not, it's not between the different branches of, of power. I think the, the, the real loser, though, is, is, is the process and the clarity and the transparency that comes with doing the appropriation process properly. Um, because, look, I, I, news for you, no one reads these bills, okay? In fact, there's no one person who knows everything that's in these bills. I think the last omnibus bill they passed was 4,000 pages, okay? Or if it wasn't, it was close, okay? And you might know a little piece of it, and you know a piece of it, and you know a piece of it, but there's not one person who knows, a, knows the entire thing of what's in that bill, and yet they vote on it. That happens every year now. Tell me how that is good representative government. I don't care if you're left wing or right wing. Tell, tell me how that is good. Actually, I take that back. I take that back. And I meant to make this point earlier, and I'll say this, and then I'll shut up. Um, if you are left leaning, you are okay with the way things are now. With the spending process broken, you are okay. Because generally speaking, the, the executive branch is left leaning. And that's including when a Republican runs the place. Okay? That the, the, the permanent government, um, the, the executive branch that's there from one administration to the next. Keep in mind, um, at CFPB, there were 1,700 employees, and I got to hire eight of them. Okay? Um, so the folks who were there are going to pretty much do what they're going to do regardless of who's in charge. 
Either that or they can operate on what we call plan B, which is they plan on being there a long time after I'm gone. All right? And so if you are progressive-minded, you're okay with the spending process being broken because you know that the weaker the legislature is, the stronger the executive branch is, and the executive branch leans left. It absolutely will never convince me of anything. Otherwise, I could tell you 100 stories that I think back that up. Um, so I, I, I think there is a, there's a breakdown there. Um, but So I think it's more partisan than it is um, institutional. Now maybe, well, there's another detail here, sure. which is that uh, whoever writes the bills, um, and, and, and it is, yeah. these bills are actually being written by a very small number of people oh, yeah. in the speaker's yeah. office and the majority leader's office. They can stick anything in that they want, and the, president, the president's veto means nothing. I mean, unless he wants to have a shutdown over something. Right. But effectively, this is a way that uh, 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 that uh, things can get through without very much scrutiny and without much possibility of, of checks and balances. And it's not democracy because this these small, we're now talking about the inside of the inside. These are these are the, uh, the, the folks who really have power and it's not responsive to the president, it's not responsive to Congress as a whole, it's responsive to the people who, uh, you know, who are in that little room. Uh, last question is in the back, uh, Mark Chenoweth. <clears throat> I wanted to come back to a point that, uh, that Judge McConnell made uh, earlier uh, about the HEROES Act and put a little finer point on it, which is to say, under the HEROES Act, uh, it's not just that you have to be worse off as a result of the pandemic, you have to be re worse off with respect to your student loans than you were before the pandemic. But because both administrations put a, put a hold on both principal payments and interest payments for the duration of the pandemic, a hold that's still in place, it's hard for me to see how any student could be worse off with respect to their student loans uh, as a result of the pandemic. The, but, He's right. But He's my, fiercely agreeing with you, Michael. <laughs> I am fiercely agreeing. But, but I have a question, but, my, but uh, given that, my question is, that uh, hold on the interest and principal costs the Treasury $5 billion a month. Isn't that unconstitutional too? Could you repeat that? Sure, the, the decision on the, on, the, on the part of both administrations to put a hold on all student loan payments of both principal and interest costs $5 billion per month. And is that effectively spending the same way that debt forgiveness is effectively exactly. spending? Okay. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Do you follow I, I don't know if you've looked at this issue. I know Beth, my colleague at AEI, Beth Akers, has written a lot about this, about separate from the loan forgiveness, the, the, the now sustained suspension of collecting payments has been itself uh, uh, immensely costly to the government. And so Mark's asking, is that also a, a violation of the, of, of the HEROES Act? I don't know. Right. Well, on the question, on, on the point of further research, one last thing, Michael. Um, I know you've been writing about, as I said at the outset, you've written about everything in constitutional law, but you have touched on the power of the purse issues from time to time. I remember 10 years ago or so, you gave a, a, the annual lecture at AEI, and it was on Hamilton and the power of the purse and budgets. And now you've returned to it in the student loan case, and you're looking at the CFPB. And I guess my question is, uh, do you see sort of further areas of, of research that have sort of piqued your interest, or, or, or are there constitutional issues floating out there elsewhere about spending, or is, is that anything you've looked at yet? Again, I'm putting you on the spot, but since you're one of the few constitutional folks who's really focused on this, and you started at OMB, I just wondered if maybe you're thinking about anything else I yet. do want to do some more work on a new budget act. Yeah. yeah. But I need to, I need to pair up. I'm thinking of pairing up with John Cogan. If you're listening out there in the live stream, John, uh, uh, we we need we he and I have talked about uh, 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 taking on taking this on as a project. Terrific. Well, before we thank our speakers, I just want to say I'm especially grateful. I know you both traveled great distances to be here today. It means uh, a lot to the Gray Center. So please join me in thanking our speakers. Thanks, Al. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. 
If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is 